All right. So before we get to the text of the confession, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. So we remember that in Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and then in Genesis chapter 2, we have a play-by-play. And we have in the creation of man something very important. I'm going to read it verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, I want you to think with me, because this is a good and necessary consequence. If the penalty for disobedience of Adam is death, what is the reward for obedience? Life. Very good. Yeah, we can say it out. That's good. <laughs> Life. Life was the reward for obedience for Adam. Now, here's not another, here's, this is not a trick question. Is Genesis 2 before or after the fall? Before. Very good. So I want us to realize this before we start looking at this. The promise of eternal life with God was given to man before the fall. We understand that? The fancy term for that from Gerhardus Voss Eschatology precedes soteriology. The promise of eternal life was given to us before the fall. That was our goal as humans, as humanity, was eternal life with God. It is not a plan B. It is not a reaction. It's not a bonus. That is the thing. That is what we were promised. We were promised God himself, eternal life with him. And the reason I say that is because we get to look at section 32 of the confession, and we get to look, I mean, it's not that long of a section, but it is our hope as Christians. And and I hope I can make it beautiful for us, because it is, and it's something we should meditate on frequently. So let's look at the text of the confession. There's three sections of this, this, and I'm going to Uh, combine two and three because they're brief and uh, we can put those into one point. But the text of Westminster Confession 32, page 867, the first section says this, the bodies of men after death return to the dust and see corruption, but their souls which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in the light and glory, in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places where souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledge none. So this is super important. When our souls die, or pardon me, when our body dies, our souls go into the presence of God. All of us. Now, notice, there's still a judgment that is coming where those souls will go to particular places, right? 
where our full, our full glorified bodies will be given, eternal life with God will be in, in, in fully consummated and fully realized in its fullest sense, and then hell and judgment in its fullest sense, in its fullest reality, will be those will be reserved for those who um, do not embrace Christ. No one likes the doctrine of hell. I don't like the doctrine of hell. If you like the doctrine of hell, you probably need to talk to your elders about it. Like, no one likes the doctrine of hell. But it's really important, and it actually shows God's love. Let me explain. A lot of people have, have problems with the doctrine of hell, especially when we're talking to unbelievers. How can a loving God have a hell? I say, how can a loving God not? And here's what I mean by that. If we had a judge right now at the courthouse who someone comes up and says, you know, I know I, I murdered and raped all those people, but you know what, I tell you, I'm a really nice guy. I do all these wonderful things. I got great friends. I take care of my family. And he goes, okay, that's fine. You're free to go. I'm pretty sure torches and pitchforks would be surrounding the building by believer and unbeliever alike before that gavel hit, because that is an unjust judge. You do not want that man on the bench, right? A good and loving God must punish sin. We like that when it's other people's sins. We don't like it when we happen to be involved in it. But then again, we also have to remember, not only are we perpetrators of sin, we're also victims of sin. People have sinned against us. We want justice. We cry out for justice, do we not? A good and loving God must punish wickedness, or else he is not good and he is not loving. I say that as an apologetic point up front in case the doctrine of hell sticks with some people in a, in a difficult way. It is important. Does that make sense? Any questions or comments at that point? Okay. So we notice a couple things here. Our bodies are not eternal. Our bodies are not eternal, but they were supposed to be. And here's what I mean by that. We read that life was the promise, the reward for Adam's obedience. Eternal life with God was his reward. He failed, of course. And what came? He's, uh, the, the, the Hebrew there, and everybody who learns Hebrew, they, 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 love, they love this verse because it's the first time they see what's called a Hebrew absolute. It really says, in dying you will die, like die, die, like really die. It's an amplification. It's not talking just physical death. This really would have stood out to them. Um, this is a serious death that's being talked about. The most, I, I know people say this and they mean well. Have you been to a funeral or something and someone goes, well, death is a natural part of life. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The most unnatural thing in the world is for a human body to die. That is why we weep at funerals and why it's good and right for us to do so. That's why Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, even though he knew he was about to raise him. He goes, this is not the way it was supposed to be. Death has claimed my friend that I love. And Jesus will rescue them as he rescued Lazarus. But this is important. This is important that we get. Death is an enemy. And so notice in, this in our confession, there's a couple things they're coming after that we deal with in our day. The bodies of men after, after death return to dust and seek corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep. Okay, now what's, what's this talking about? Um, has anybody ever heard of the doctrine of annihilationism? Okay. Annihilationism is this, is that when uh, someone dies, there is no conscious torment of hell. 
Now, when, when I, I know you're, you're, you're immediately having verses come to your mind of, of, you know, where the worm never dies and, 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 and eternal destruction, the smoke of their torment goes up. They're not, they're not unaware of those verses. What they say is that, yeah, but look back at the prophets. Those are talking about desolation. They're talking about destruction. They're not talking about an ongoing thing. So they have exegetical points. I think they're wrong, but they have really thought through their arguments on this, okay? And the reason I say that is because if I don't tell you this and someone comes with an exegetical argument trying to back it up, you might go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And <laughs> so that's why I'm telling you. you no, know, they've thought through it. They've thought through it a lot. So what they say is that there is no conscious torment of hell. What happens is that you cease to exist. God removes, if you will, your existence. And they would argue, you think that eternal conscious torment is worse than ceasing to exist. You downgrade the human existence. And I go, no, I uphold it. I might say this again, but I'm going to say it now. Our bodies matter to God. Do you want to know why I know that God the Father cares about your human body? It's because the Son took upon one. That's how much he cares about our bodies. Our bodies matter to God. You matter to God, soul and body. He cares about it. So that's annihilationism. But then there's, or sleep. Have you heard of the concept of soul sleep? Soul sleep is the concept that, and a lot of people teach this too, that when you die, um, you kind of just, your soul just kind of waits, just kind of goes to take a nappy nap until, until the final judgment, and everybody, you know, then, then kind of wakes up, doesn't it say, at the, the, yeah, at the trump, all will rot. Yeah, it does, but it also says other things, and that's what we're going to look at. And so the reason they're com combating this is because there's also a third one that's going to be mentioned later, the doctrine of purgatory. Okay. Purgatory is not for people going to hell. Okay. In order, and the Roman Catholic idea of purgatory, in order to go to purgatory, you must be in a state of grace. The concept is this. Yes, you've been justified by Christ. Absolutely. And as you cooperate with grace, um, more and more of, of you is made intrinsically, absolutely righteous. Um, we say our righteousness is an alien righteousness. It comes from outside of us. It comes from Christ, right? They would say that's a legal fiction. No, you are righteous because you are righteous, okay? That's how the logic works. It's very rationalistic in that aspect. Well, no one can say, well, I, 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 I've got rid of all my, the, the, the temporal effects of my sins, and, and uh, 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 so... Purgatory is a place of cleansing, uh, of, of, of fire that, that cleanses away the temporal effects and the temporal stain of, 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 our, of our sin. What would be some of the problems with that? What's that? Right, right. Well, he made it possible for us to go there, right? <laughs> uh, but, but no, it, it absolutely downplays the work of Christ. By faith, uh, one of my mentors used to say it this way, you can never be more holy than you are right now. I know it sounds weird at first, right? You can never be more holy than you are right now. Why is that? Right, we have Christ's holiness imputed to us, given to us. Now, do we grow in that? Absolutely. And on the last day, 
Or when Christ comes, we will be made perfectly righteous in every single way. And this is important. This is important that we get because this is taking away, the idea of purgatory takes away from the concept of Christ's totality. When, when Christ on the cross said, totality, it is finished, he meant it. He didn't mean, I got most of it. No, he got it all. Praise the Lord. Because I don't have any hope other than that. I have no hope. So how can I say that when we die, we go into the presence of God? Well, we have 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. You don't have to flip there. I can read it to us. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. When we are away from our body, where are we? With the Lord. Or my favorite book in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Now, what happens here, starting at verse 2, is, is anybody ever seen the dead parrot sketch from Monty Python? Okay. That's what Kohelet, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, is doing. He's going to pile up all these metaphors of death. So this is, he's off the twig, he's kicked the bucket, he's, you know, all this kind of stuff, but ways that we typically don't say it. I say that so you can hear it. I want you to hear the drone, because that's what, the, that's what this is trying to evoke, this poetry. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the, housekeepers of the, house, or the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the door on the street is shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what, uh, of what is high, and the terrors in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the street. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. That's the relief, right? That's the release of that. Ecclesiastes is awesome. Read it. It's good, I think, to read Ecclesiastes to start off the year. <laughs> it gets us... It gets, okay, side note. Um, Ecclesiastes is not uh, just a cynical man writing cynical things. No, it is a man giving us wisdom of where do we find God in this world of pain? We find him here in this world with us. That's where we find him in the gifts that he gives that lift us up to him. Free sermon. Okay. Now, maybe you've heard this. Hell is separation from God. In, in, in some way, that's true. But let me ask you this. It's separation from what of God? What? Holiness. Holiness that's a good one. What else? Love. What else? Or mankind. Right. Can I, can I give that a word? His grace. Yeah. Right? If... We reject God our whole life. Eventually he goes, okay, you don't want me? Okay. So C.S. Lewis says the door to hell is locked on both sides. 
Because when that grace is finally taken away, all the common grace that has been given, wow. But here's the thing. Hell isn't away from the presence of God. I forget who said it. Someone said it a long time ago. Heaven is heaven because God is there and Christ is our mediator before him. Hell is hell because God is there and we do not have Christ as our mediator. We don't have anyone to shield us from the holy wrath of God. We don't have anyone to, 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 to appease that holy wrath. We don't have a propitiatory sacrifice for us. And so all that is left is what's good and right for a holy God. Um, if I put it this way, if, um, if I lie to my wife, I sleep on the couch tonight, right? If um, I lie uh, to a police officer, um, I go to jail, right? If I lie, in theory, to Congress, I go to a federal prison, right? Now, the same sin was committed three times, lying. What changed? Right, what, right. The severity of the penalty because of the status of the one whom was sinned against, right? So what is the logical and right punishment for sins against a holy God? An eternal God. An eternal punishment. It, 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 makes, it makes logical sense. We may not like it, but it makes logical sense. Now, we have hope here. This was drilled into me when I was taking my licensure. My mentor drilled it into me. What is your hope? As a Christian, what is your hope? We say it every time we recite the creed. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life in the world to come. But this life is not all there is. That is our hope. I don't know about y'all. I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting my sin. I'm tired of the thorns and thistles that I have to hack and bite off with my bare teeth, it seems like sometimes every day. I'm sick of my body that doesn't want to cooperate, especially as I get older. I'm seven years ahead of my wife, and she's starting to notice things. I'm like, oh, baby, wait till you're 40. There's this meme going around, you know, you know, meme starts like a virus, right? Where it shows this cat looking like this, and it goes, you have me after 40 trying to read anything, what I look like? And it's like, yeah, basically. But I'm, I'm tired. I want to go home. I want to rest. The resurrection of the body is precious. Sometimes, I'm just going to be honest with y'all, because I, I, I'm free in the gospel. I, 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 don't, I, I don't care. I, I don't have to hide anything anymore. Sometimes, because I deal with anxiety and depression, sometimes the only thing that gets me out of bed in the morning is the fact that the resurrection is true. This life is not all there is. By the help of the Spirit, I can go through one more day, maybe. Maybe the Spirit can just help me get my feet off the side of the bed. That's a good start. And we'll take it from there. Sometimes that's all the strength that I have in my physical body. I need you to take me the rest of the way. And by God's grace, he has. And he'll continue to do so. The reason I say this is I want this doctrine to be precious to you all. So, reading two and three together. At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame, with the selfsame bodies 
and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. The bodies of the unjust shall by the power of Christ be raised to dishonor, the bodies of the just by his spirit raised unto honor and be made conformable to his own glorious body. As I, as, as I said this before, I'm going to say it again. Your humanity, your humanity matters to God. It, it, it's not that he just saved the concept of you. This is my problem with, with, with forms that, uh, of, of Christianity that, that don't confess God's absolute sovereignty over salvation. God didn't die for a possibility. He died for me. I can say with Paul that Jesus died for me and gave himself for me. It's intensely personal, but it's not just your soul he wants. It's your body too. He wants all your humanity. When I was a pastor, what I, what I used to say is much of my, and our sex still is, mo most of my ministry can be boiled down to people realizing their humanity. The world wants to take it from us. The corporate machine out there wants to turn us into a cog, not humans. Sometimes in our own families, we're not seen as humans. They don't see us, right? They see what we can do, what we provide, how we fit, but they don't see us. The world out there doesn't see us. They see us as groups. But Jesus sees us. And the reason I know our humanity matters so much is Jesus took upon himself a true human body and a true human nature. And moreover, he ascended with that same human body, only it's awesome now. How do I know it's a true human body? It ate. He said, touch me. I have flesh and bone. Spirit don't have that. So realize that your humanity is being held safe right now at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus is described as the first fruit of those who rise from the grave. The first fruit, right? Anybody know, I've heard about the festival of first fruits. What is the concept of the festival of first fruits? You would bring in your first fruits, the, the, you know, the best you have, right? You'd bring in your bushel or, or bring in a lamb or whatever it is, because what is it? You have brought this harvest and this guarantees that you will be faithful to bring in the rest. Jesus is the first fruit. Therefore, it is a foregone conclusion, it necessarily follows that we will rise with him as well. That means all of us. Yes, that means the wicked will rise with a glorified body. Now, imagine a body that can't die in hell. That's frightening. Your humanity matters. Can I share something with you? I love Paul. I love Paul so much because Paul doesn't hold anything back talking about his own heart. First Corinthians, pardon me, Second Corinthians 1, where he says this. We know, verse 3 and following, blessed be the God of our Father, uh, God, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we might comfort those and other, you know, in their afflictions. You know, all, that's beautiful. That's a precious truth. But notice where he goes with this. Verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul saying he wishes he was dead. Yeah, he did. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
So thank you. I'm going to say that was the spirit because it puts us right back on topic with that. God wants you to come to the end of yourself. He wants you to give up. I'm serious. I, 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 almost, I almost wrote a book that said God wants you to give up. In fact, I might still write it today. He wants you to give up. Stop trying to do it on your own power. You have begun in the spirit. Are you trying to be, sanct- are you, are you trying to be sanctified in the flesh? It's going to frustrate you because you're going to fail yourself every day. I fail me every day. So, notice this. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 26, a long one. Dr. Baugh, one of my mentors, he's retired now at Westminster Seminary. He said he wanted to do an entire semester-length seminary class just on 1 Corinthians 15. And you could really do it. Um, but here's what he says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Man, all we're hoping for is this life. But notice this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God and his Father, uh, to to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. God is working, but we don't always see it. And sometimes that's discouraging to us. He is putting all enemies under his feet, and the last one will be death. You realize Hitler lost when we landed in Normandy? There was no way for him to win at that point. Does that mean all the Germans threw down their guns? No. That was a hard trudge at that beach. Then you had to fight through the hedgerows, which was not fun. Oh, then there was a whole battle of the bulge they had to deal with. The last gasp effort, right? But every soldier knew that war was won. We're going to Berlin. Let's go. Come on, guys, we can do this. Christ has won. However, there's still mud and blood that needs to be splattered on us a little bit. And that's tiring. So how do we push through? We push through because we know the end. I'm a gamer. I knew my family was from someone in, someone in our family. I knew my family was getting a PS5 this Christmas, and we got one, finally. Um, build up the Christmas is kind of crazy, but I knew I was getting a PS5. And I knew a game I was getting because my brother-in-law uh, told me he was getting it. And I was like, that's awesome. Um, 
when we know what's waiting for us, we can deal with a lot. I go to the gym, not as dedicated as I should, maybe you can tell, but, but um, my wife is the dedicated one when it comes to the gym and diet and all that kind of stuff because she has, she has a goal she wants to get through, and that helps her get through all you know, the, the, the soreness of the body and the hunger pains and all that kind of stuff that I don't like because she sees the outcome of what will be. How do you get through this life as you remember that heaven is real, that this life is not all there is? The more you focus your gaze upon the hope of the resurrection of the dead and the life in the world to come, it gives everything in this world meaning. Everything in this world has meaning because that is true. Do you see what I mean? Every conversation we have, every family member to us, whether they believe in Christ or don't, whether, any person we meet on the street, anything that happens to us by the, by the mistake of our own fault and our own sin or, or the fact that we live in a sin-stained world and sin comes against us, everything has a meaning and purpose and eternal weight because the resurrection is true. That's how we get through. And when I figure it out, I'll let you know. Or when you figure it out, you let me know on how best to do it but I know that is the way. Okay, no one's a Mandalorian fan. I figured someone would say something back to me. All right. <laughs> Can we talk real? How do we use this in the world? Um, by not looking at anybody in particular, I'll, I'll, I'll address this. Um, teenagers in this room, young people in this room, or people who used to be young people in this room, have you ever stared at the mirror and absolutely hated what you saw? Looked at your body and just been disgusted by it? That's the common thing. It's called body dysmorphia. A lot of people really don't like their body. You know, some people, if I can change one thing about my, my body, besides losing 40 pounds, um, is, is I, I had really bad acne as a teenager, and I have horrible acne scarring. I wish that can go away, it just doesn't. Um, you know, I, I guess they could do something, but I don't have thousands for that, or probably tens of thousands, who knows. I, I really wish this acne scarring can go away. Um, but you realize that there are some people that have a scale on that body dysmorphia that go to the point where I am refusing to eat. And no matter how thin I get, I am never thin enough. Or maybe they might realize that they're hungry and then they, they eat a lot and then they go, oh, my, oh no, what have I done? And guilt and shame kick in because they don't like their, their body and, and, and they, they hurt themselves by, 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 by making it come back up again over and over again. There are people that do this. This is one side. Um, as the, of, of, of this particular spectrum as it's going. All right, y'all with me? Because now we're going to get really real. Because there's a world out there of people that we are going to share Christ with. Do you realize that there are some people who look in the mirror and absolutely hate the biological parts that they have and want them gone? Do you realize that? The reason I showed that spectrum is because whether we are here, and I wish I didn't have my acne scarring, or we are here saying, I want to remove perfectly healthy organs, 
It's the same spectrum. It's just on a different point of that spectrum down the road. The reason I share that is because we have a tendency to see the sins of others as completely foreign to our experience. And as someone said, it is very easy to be judgmental of sins we don't think we struggle with. Does that make sense? The reason I share this is because when we run into somebody who is on that side of the spectrum, if we realize that though I'm not that far down the spectrum, I understand that because I've tasted a little of that, it creates in us empathy. Jesus looked at people with compassion, like sheep without a shepherd. I want to see people the way Jesus sees people. He wasn't going, oh, tranny, gross. He was going, that's someone who needs Christ. How, that's someone who needs me, and I love them. How can I show my love for them? And quite often, especially in the Reformed camp, we think if I just fire truth at them, that's loving. Can be, but ask parents in the room. I'll just be honest with parents. Have you said true things to your kids in wrong ways that made a mess of it? I think we all have, right? We said true things in wrong ways that really made a mess of it. And, in, and instead of opening their heart, just hardened them more. You know what I mean? What hope does the gospel have for someone over here? It's right here. Do you realize that in Christ, one day you will have a body that you feel absolutely perfectly comfortable in? Do you realize that your humanity matters so much to God that he's going to raise it glorified? Do you realize that though being in this body right now is, is, is painful for you, this body is not all there is. It's going to change one day. Do you realize now how the gospel is hope for them? Do you realize that we could reach them with the gospel if we actually had an ear to listen and hear instead of quick judgment? Does that make sense? Too much? Questions, comments? Okay. Either really clear or really not. All right. <laughs> I hear something? Okay. I want the gospel to take over your hearts and captivate your minds. I want the beauty of Christ to be in your eyes and in your heart. And I want you to long for that. When this world wants to take it away, I'm happy that we get to gather in a place wherever we are whether it's two or three, an ordained dude, a cheap bottle of wine and a loaf of bread and a Bible. And something important and amazing is happening there. Um, I, I really wish it could have been Bob and Steve or something, but, you know, Elijah and Elisha, you know, we always get those confused, right? But when Elisha is surrounded by the armies and he's not worried and his servant is going, hey, we're surrounded, and uh, Elisha just says, uh, Lord, please let him see what I see. And he saw the armies of the Lord's hosts surrounding the hills. And he goes, I guess we're going to be okay. Sometimes we need to pray that the Lord would help us see as he sees. And that's really difficult. Sometimes we need a bird's eye view. 
Sometimes we can't see from down here. Sometimes we need to get up high. My body is starting to break down in ways that I didn't know it could. I throw my back out thinking now. I can't not see anything. Like, like the second I take my glasses off, my head hurts. I see a blur that I think is familiar. That's Bill. Uh, <laughs> that, that's like about it. And people go like, are you nearsighted or farsighted? No, it's just jacked. You know, I just can't see anything. You know, uh, it doesn't matter at this point. These are my first, these are my starter bifocals. It's really weird. Like, it's only going to get worse. Like, like you, ever, you ever seen that, that Brian Regan thing where he got trifocals? Is that a bird? Is that a plane? Is that Alpha Centauri? You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, I don't know how you, 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 you figure that out. But, but, but my body is starting to break down. Um, some of yours is farther along. And I want to encourage you. It will not always be like this. It will not always be like this. You will have a body that is wonderful. And true body. The essence of Gnosticism is this. That matter is evil. Things are bad. No, God made a good creation. Your human body is good. In fact, after it was created and God surveyed everything, Genesis 131, God said it was what? Very good. Man in his body did what to God's creation? He broke it. And from that comes decay of our body. When we get to Genesis 5, what do we read? It says that God created Adam in his image after his likeness. And after 130 years, Adam fathered Seth in his image and his likeness. And we have this running theme of, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's a drone who will deliver us from this. This is not the way it was supposed to be. This is not the way it was supposed to be. When we, when we see what it was supposed to be, all the things that are outside of that then lose its focus. Now, what is the heart of the gospel, and what are we bringing to our hearts, firstly, and then to others, secondly? What wars are we fighting, and if we're fighting them, how are we fighting them in the gospel? There are certain battles that are good battles to have. How are we fighting them? Are we fighting them in the gospel, are we fighting them for other reasons and in other ways, be they political or sociological or whatever? Are we fighting with the gospel? The gospel is our weapon. The gospel brings our hope. And our hope is that our bodies will be resurrected. All right, any thoughts? Any comp? Any, any, yes. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. In fact, I, I, I cut out a whole bunch on that uh, just to make sure I didn't go over my time, because that is something that does matter to me. Um, any form of, what he's talking about is any form of dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is, 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 is the default American eschatology. It just is. And there's historical reasons for that. Um, uh, when you had the liberal fundamentalist arguments, it, was, it tended to be that the uh, dispensationalists were the fundamentals. Uh, fundamentalists, and so it kind of latched on. Um, but dispensationalism cannot at all uh, agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith. It just can't. Um, Ligon Duncan, he tells this story. Uh, what is he? 
nine generations, I think, South Carolina he was uh, or is or something like that. But uh, when, um, uh, when the PCUS was in the midst of its troubles, uh, his dad was a minister, and one of his friends was uh, a missionary. And uh, uh, apparently they're at their General Assembly, and, and liberals were doing the liberal things, and, and Lincoln Duncan's dad's buddy turns to Lig's, uh, Lig's dad and goes, man, if they keep this up, I'm going to take my Schofield reference Bible and go back out in the mission field. He didn't even, he didn't see, right, that, that the connection there, that, that what the Schofield notes teach are absolutely against what the scripture teaches and, and against what our confession teaches, but it's been so ingrained that this is what conservative Christians look like. Does that make sense? The problem is dispensationalism did not exist until 1830, when John, Will, uh, John Nelson Darby came up with the, the early concepts of it. If anything began to exist in 1830, you question it big time. There were a lot of things going on in the 1800s, in the 1830s especially. 18, well, Mormonism is going on, Christian science is going on, uh, 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 Seventh-day Adventism is going on. There's a lot of, this is, this is the, the Second Great Awakening, this is burned over district time, this is, this is all those things. So many, so many heresies and so many schisms started in this time. Dispensationalism is one of them. Um, what, what's funny is that they, can, they have these really cool slick charts, but they can never agree because, as he said, some people say that, that Jesus comes back and people get out of here um, at the beginning of the seven years. Some people say in the middle of the seven years. Some people say at the end of the seven years. They can't get that straight, and then they have to fight with each other and argue with each other about who's more dispensational or what, and it gets really complicated. The problem is this is that nowhere in the Bible does it ever talk about an interval, as, as, as our brother pointed out, does it ever talk about an interval between when Christ comes in judgment. When Christ comes, show's over. And by the way, that's hope. That's hope. That's why we can pray Maranatha with John. I hope you pray it a lot. I do. I really want to speak. I, I'm okay if we don't get through this service. I really am. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure Pastor Bullock has got something awesome to share with us. But you know what? Jesus has something better to share. I'd be ready to go, you know, be up there. That's great. You can tell him I said that. I'm sure he'd agree. Um, you know, Jesus can totally, you know, take my, 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 my pulpit time right now, right? I think it'd be okay. Good thing we're going to hear the words of Christ anyway. Um, but I, 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 I don't want there to be some kind of, one of my professors said it best, it's the most American thing to think, oh, we'll get out of here before things get really bad. <laughs> That's the most American theology in the world. <laughs> no, this life, and, and, and I, I love the fact that the scriptures don't sugarcoat this. It sounds almost, when you look at the words, it sounds almost, almost, almost uh, like, like demeaning, but, but it's not. When the scriptures can talk about life as this light, momentary affliction. We just shared what Paul thought about what he went through in life. He didn't downplay his life. It was suffering. It was awful. But in light of glory, he can say it's light. Because it's way less than I deserve. It's momentary. It'll end one day. And it is affliction, there's no doubt. Or as, or as Peter can say in a book written to suffering Christians, can say, after you've suffered a little while. Um, I don't remember 
if it's in the PCA member's vows. But that is in the OPC member's vows. And then after you've suffered a little while, we put it right in there. Because we want that to be remembered. After you've suffered a little while, Jesus is yours in fullness. So that's my pitch to be all mill. Because I think, I think not only is it true biblically, I think it brings so much hope. Is that good for you? It's exciting. Mm-hmm. And it's come to our believers, you know, the, mm-hmm. the powerful speech and what you see yep. happening. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's great. Yeah. And we have to, we have to um, make a, a difference between uh, dispensationalism and what's called historic premillennialism. Um, where they, they still believe, and so I, I personally don't. Um, I, I don't know why in a, in a book where all numbers are taken symbolically, we take 1,000 years and make that literal, considering 1,000 has already been used twice symbolically already in the scriptures. That being said, um, that there's some kind of literal 1,000 years on earth, that's historic pre-mill, and then comes the end. Um, I don't see that in scripture, um, for the reason I just said. If you see that number, literally how it's supposed to be, as a figurative example, what's 10 times 100? A complete authoritative time. Um, it's just like the tribulation um, for our dispensational friends. When they tell them, when they go, you know, well, the great tribulation's coming, what are we talking about? It's already here. You know how bad the tribulation is? They killed Jesus. It's really bad. <laughs> um, how do I know that? It's because when Peter stood up, he said, on, this, on these last days, we're in the last days. They started when Christ came. And they're moving until Christ comes again. Now, for an eternal God, what is 2,000 years? How much, uh, how much time is that for him? Maybe, right? Not even a second, right? I hate to say it. I hate to say it. The best definition and picture of eternity I got, I got from a Lifetime movie, okay? But here's what it is. I, I, I had to watch a lot of Lifetime movies with my mom growing up. Um, there, there was, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's the typical Lifetime movie. She's, she's talking to this one guy who did this bad thing, and she goes, you're going to hell. Do you know how long hell is? Imagine a giant steel ball the size of the earth, and once every thousand years, an eagle comes and lands on it, and then jumps off. By the time that, that planet-sized steel ball is wound down to a marble, that will not be one second of hell. And I went, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> what does Dante say is written above? The gates, abandon hope, ye winter here. Eternity is a long time. Eternity is a long time. And the reason eternity has to be a long time is because God wants to show us for eternity his riches and his kindness. Do you realize it's going to take eternity to understand an eternal God and to be with him and to see all the things and hear all the things and know all the things that he has for us? So, in the OPC, um, I had people in our presbytery who were historic pre-mill, who were post-mill. That means that we're going to do a bunch of awesome things, and uh, I, if people are post-mill, I know I'm simplifying it. We're going to do a bunch of things here by the Spirit's help that will Christianize the world, and then Jesus will come. It is uh, Benjamin Warfield and Gahardus Voss walking in Princeton, where Warfield says Jesus comes to a saved earth, and Voss goes, no, he comes to save the earth. That's the argument in the camp. Um, and then there's, of course, people with an all-mill perspective. 
and we all had to live together in the same presbytery. Um, there's, there's a point where we can have uh, uh, great conversations and compassion with our friend, but realize that most Christians simply don't even have the grid to understand that there's not dispensational understanding of Scripture. They don't even have the grid. And it's really hard. It's really hard to convince them of that because they, they have a whole, a whole thing to put in. Maybe I can say it this way. Uh, John Leonard, in his book, uh, Get Real, he writes it just fantastically this way. He says that, that we evangelize Christians and we disciple non-believers. And what he means by that is us Christians, we keep forgetting the gospel every minute, every, every five minutes. Someone asked Luther once, why do you preach justification by faith in every sermon? He says, because every week my people forget it. I need to be reminded of it again today. I, 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 need, to, I need to be known that I'm justified by faith alone. Because I, 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 I know the part, just, just the half of my sin this, this week. I need to know I'm forgiven. I need it. Um, but when it comes to unbelievers, there is an entire worldview that needs to be changed, right? How long does that take? How long does it take walking with an unbeliever, getting them to see, understand, change their point of view? Um, you realize that if I had an apple, I could run windows on it. You realize that, right? You know it's a lot of work to make it do that, but I could make it do that. That is kind of what it, you have to do. You have to change an entire worldview, an entire operating system. That takes a long time. Sometimes we have that with our dispensational brothers too, right? Or, and sisters, where it, it takes a lot of new categories being formed. You know what I mean? But I agree. Every confession has amillennialism at its point. The second Helvetic says, we reject Jew, uh, uh, Jewish golden dreams. And what that meant is any kind of millennialism, or, or kiliasm as it's technically called, any kind of, uh, of millenarianism they reject because they say, I'm sorry, it's just not in Scripture. So yeah, every, every Reformed tradition that I'm aware of is all mill. Any other thoughts, any other comments? Okay, cool. I finished with a few minutes to spare. <laughs> Um, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this hope. This hope is it gives, it, it, the hope that gives us fuel. It gives us energy. It gives us life. That your gospel has not just purchased our soul, but purchased our body as well. That, that, that Christ, what you have done on the cross, has redeemed not just our soul, but our bodies as well. And in your resurrection, in your ascension, you're holding our humanity right now at your right hand. Father, we pray that this hope would rejoice our hearts and infuse everything in our lives with meaning and purpose and, 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 and joy, even as we suffer, even as our bodies decay, even as we, we may not like what we see when we look at our bodies, even when we feel pain and hurt, even when, when, when our mind and our heart are, are burdened, when, 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 when anxiety or depression or, or any kind of, of, of thing affects our mind, which is part of our body, when any of that thing comes upon us, Lord, will you please help us with your gospel, fight it in hope and walk with you. May we fall upon our, uh, not, uh, on your strength and not ours. May, may, may we see these things as, as, as ways that, 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 that our strength has failed and that we are relying on you and that you walk with us, you carry us, you lead us until that great day where we don't have to fight anymore and we will finally have all that you have purchased with your blood. We long for that day. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everybody.